Um, a, a week ago, I reconnected with a friend, and uh, he said, hey, have you connected with Casey and Kelly, the new youth ministers at uh, Landmark? We've known each other. I guess we've known them since they were just little. And I said, no, but I'm going to go uh, at, to Landmark next week. In fact, I'm speaking there. And he said, dude, you're speaking at Landmark? Are you kidding me? He said, isn't that where Buddy Bell preaches? He said, he's like one of the best preachers in the Church of Christ. What are they asking you there for? I said, I don't know. <laughs> I'm an accountant. You know. So, uh, so I, you know, it is what it is. I, I, Buddy told me he warned you guys and put it in the bulletin. Obviously, you didn't read because even Buddy left town. Uh, uh, so glad to be here. You can tell you have a real preacher because what is this thing? You know, you know, a, a real preacher, he's got a, he just needs a stand like this to put a Bible and a you know, bottle of water. You know, I've got notes, my glasses, I've got my birth certificate in here. I've got <laughs> life insurance policies there if I have a heart attack. Uh, I need more of a cockpit, you know, something that's got all my stuff and has a bag that I can breathe into when I get nervous. So good to, good to be here today. Lisa and I have been blessed uh, coming to Montgomery, just overwhelmed with the people of this community. I'm very blessed to be a part of Faulkner University. Over the last year, we've been asking a question at Faulkner that's really an important question for us. I think it's an important question for every church. What does it mean to be Christ-centered? It's got to mean more than praise. It's got to mean more than biblical study, study of the text. It's got to mean more than just holding each other to a high and lofty code of conduct. It's got to mean more than that. And we're coming to, come to understand that what it means to be Christ-centered is that we run towards broken humanity. That when, there's, when we're surrounded by deep societal challenges, God's people run to it. Could Faulkner University, could the Landmark Church become an army of revolutionaries that help restore the community to what God intended from the beginning. Friday was a great day. We had our day of, of service where we mobilized the entire campus, students and faculty and staff going into Montgomery and finding meaningful ways that we be, can be engaged in the community and provide service. There were some unbelievable scenes that emerged that uh, really captured uh, my soul uh, throughout the day. Uh, here's a couple of them. One of the first places I went was the house-to-house ministry. And actually, Nathan was leading a group of faculty, staff, and students as they rebuilt a home. And as soon as I walked in, I, I came face-to-face with Amanda and Cynthia. And they were grinning ear-to-ear. They, they were holding up a, uh, a wall, a framed wall. And they said, look what we built. They just had all the smile on their face. But what was more moving was a few minutes later when I saw them embracing the woman whose family would move into that house. It's a great moment. I saw Josh Fullman actually painting at a Valiant Cross. You should not give up your day job. So, there are lots of funny things that happened over the day. I saw John Noel Thompson covered in dirt and sweat. But he and his colleagues, they revolutionized the courtyard at Davis Elementary. Davis Elementary is an important place for Faulkner University. It's a a partnership that we've designed uh, to be immersed in the community. 
And Davis Elementary is our school. And so we took a lot of students over there uh, to be engaged with that school. I saw the men and women's basketball team. Didn't know you guys were going to be here. Uh, they were great. They lit Davis Elementary on fire. Back when Coach Sanderson came out, he said, he said, I just invited the whole school to one of our games. I don't know how we're going to get them there, but uh, we'll figure it out. It was an awesome, awesome day to see them engaged at D- Davis Elementary. The principal, Miss Alves, got on the microphone at the end of the day and led the school in a Go Faulkner cheer. That's what happens when God shows up. That's what happens when we empty ourselves and run into the community and exemplify Jesus Christ and serving other people. We capture the world's attention. They're not expecting it. God is leading us in this revolution. It's not a war that's won with guns or with words. It's a war that's won with love. It's won with compassion. It's won with mercy. Today, we're going to look at an ancient story, thousands of years old, but just like a lot of the biblical texts. And even though it was written to a different people at a different time about a culture that we can't really even relate to, there's essence of this story is really relevant to us in 2016. Are you familiar with the, the phrase, the devil's bargain? The devil's bargain is that you don't ask a lot of me and I won't ask a lot of you. And then we'll just be cool. We're going to see the devil's bargain kind of coming out in this text. Um, let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 2, verses 24 through 25. God, God and Moses have this really, really kind of unique encounter. Set out now and cross the Arnon Gourds. See, I have given into your hand Sihon the Amorite, king of Heshbon and his country. Begin to take possession of it and engage him in battle. This very day, I will begin to put the terror and fear of you on all the nations under heaven, and they will hear reports of you and tremble and be in anguish because of you. Okay, you got the setting? God says, take them. Engage them in the battle. I've got this. Now let's listen to Moses' response. From the desert of Kedmoth, I sent messengers to Sihon, king of Heshbon, offering peace and saying, Let us pass through your country, and we'll stay on the main road. And we'll not turn aside to the right or the left. Sell us food to eat and water to drink for their price of silver. Only let us pass through on foot. As the descendants of Esau, who live in Seir, and the Moabites, who live in Ar, did for us, until we crossed the Jordan into the land the Lord our God is giving us. Do you find that kind of interesting? God says, engage him in battle. Moses said, better plan. How about Let's negotiate. God says, take them. I've got this. Moses said, ah, let's just compromise. Let's go down the middle. Nobody gets hurt that way. No casualties. I like my plan better. It's amazing. Let's continue the story. But Sihon, king of Heshbon, refused to let us pass through. For the Lord your God has made his spirit stubborn and his heart obstinate in order to give him into your hands as he has now done. The Lord said to me, 
See, I have begun to deliver Sihon and his country over to you. Now begin to conquer and possess his land. When Sihon and all his army came out to meet us in battle at Jahaz, the Lord our God delivered him over to us and we struck him down together with his sons and his whole army. Moses didn't believe God. God said engage. He didn't trust him. So he forced him into a fight that he really didn't want to fight. And so what happened that day is he conquered so much more than Sihon. The Israelites conquered their fear that day, and they realized that when God said go, he was not sending them alone. When he said engage in the battle, he was saying, do not be afraid. I don't think this is a text that's calling us to wage a holy war in an unbelieving world. Nor is it calling us to hunker down in a Christian foxhole. But I think this is a reflective passage that calls us to think very deeply about our faith and what is it the calling of God is forcing us to do. What battles have we been avoiding? We all battle addictions. We battle sometimes addictions to substances. And we all battle addictions to ourselves, our own desires. God is calling us to a mission of engagement, of reconciliation. But like Moses, is there a disconnect between what he's calling us to do and what we're actually doing? We all have relationships. Some of the relationships in our lives are broken. God is calling us to mend them. Is it easier to compromise and just avoid the conflict? Scripture tells us that we're aliens and strangers in this land. Are we just like the Israelites that we're just trying to arrive at death's door safely? Are we engaged in the devil's bargain? Where we don't really ask a lot of anybody and hope that they don't ask anything of us. This story really presents us with some difficult issues, some difficult questions. It reminds us that fear is debilitating. It sterilizes everything and everybody. Has the fear of the future, has the fear of the unknown crippled us? If we're honest, it has. We've let fear drive us nuts. Let's pick up the story later in uh, Moses' life. As you know, Joshua is chosen to be Moses' successor. And they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And he makes this unbelievable statement to Joshua and the people. Deuteronomy 31, verse 7 and 8. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the presence of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their forefathers to give them, and you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you, and he'll never leave you 
nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. This is not the same Moses who negotiated with Sihon. Moses now has much better understanding. He's been awakened to the presence of God. That when God says engage, there's no time to be afraid. We see Joshua now with the baton going into Jericho, the fortified city. And, and Joshua sends the spies into Jericho. There's 10 of them to spy out the land. You remember the story they said that the king's men found out that the spies were among them. And they went out looking for them. And the spies, they took refuge in Rahab the prostitute's house and hid up on a roof. When the king's men came to Rahab, she sent them off in a different direction. She went, later went up to the roof and made this unbelievable statement. Joshua chapter 2, verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land, and a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. When we heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two king of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven and above and on earth below. She said, I've saved you. When you come back to destroy this city, will you save me? The spies said, put a scarlet cord in your window. And when we come back to take the city, we'll save everyone in your household. And that's exactly what happened. Joshua, the night before they invaded Jericho, listen to this statement. Consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow, the Lord is going to do amazing things among you. Quite a contrast to Moses and Sihon. He's not afraid. He says, God is going to do something amazing with us. It's an understatement to say that we haven't watched a collapse in moral clarity in our society. And we're watching our country go nuts on every side. When my dad passed away this past year, and uh, as he got later in life, his mobility, you know, was great, greatly reduced. And so occasionally I would stop by his house for lunch. And uh, by lunch, you know, he's had four or five hours of national and international news, and so his pants are on fire. And so it's not when I walk in, he says, hey, how's it going, son? How are you today? It's no, it's like, do you know what's going on today? Like, dad, talk down off the ledge, come on down, <laughs> turn off CNN, turn off Fox, you, do, you don't need any more. But it's understandable to some degree because he's watched the world go crazy. And when people say America is post-Christian, he's like, what? What just happened? It's understandable that he might be concerned about what's going on around us. There's a temptation for all of us to respond to our current situation like Moses did. 
We can choose to just ignore the crisis that's going on around us. We can choose to just mitigate the risk and compromise. Or we could engage in the battle. Now, I must tell you that I'm not calling for a mean-spirited, rock-throwing, name-calling, finger-pointing campaign that we see around us. As you can tell, that's accomplishing zero. But we are called to be engaged in God's revival. And we've been praying for revival in America for four and a half decades. What is exactly do we want to happen? Dear God, bring about revival. What does that mean? Does that mean we want God to send plagues? Does that mean that we want God to destroy Sodom? Do we want him to turn D.C. into a pillar of salt? Well, that's not a bad idea, but... (laughs) What is it that we're calling God to do in revival? Tony Campolo is one of my favorite authors and speakers, and he was asked to speak at a women's auxiliary group. And before he got up to speak, the president of the women's auxiliary said... Dr. Campola, before you speak, we got a very nice letter from a missionary down in South America who's had their van uh, broken down, and, and would you just pray that God will give them the funds so that they'll have their van back before you speak to us today? Campola stood up and he said, absolutely not. I'm not praying for a lousy 5000 bucks." He said, let's pass the hat right now. We're going to pass the hat. Just put your cash and your change in there. No checks, no plastic, just what's in your purse. Let's go. I'm serious. And they did. It took a while. And when they counted it all up, they had about $7,500. Campolo said, there's no time for me to speak. So let me just say this. The audacity to ask God for something he's already given you. We've been praying for revival in America. The audacity to ask him something he's already given us. He's already given us the holy text. He's given us the very spirit of God that raised Jesus from the dead. What is it that we want to have happen? He's calling for revival. And he's given us absolutely everything we need to engage in the battle. Lest you think that I think God is retired or silent or done everything that I think he's going to do, I think it's a Judges 10 moment where a decadent people cried out to God and prayed that they would be saved. And they were saved, but they were saved by a future generation. One of the reasons why my dad and I are different is that I hang around college students. He watched too much Fox News. This emerging generation. They've certainly got their share of challenges. Most of them are challenges that we laid at their feet. But this may be one of the greatest generations that ever have come. They're different. They actually believe in the priesthood of all believers. My generation says that we believe in the priesthood of all believers, but we don't. We pay guys like Buddy, Jeremy, Casey, and others, Nathan. You guys do it. Let us do our thing. You do your thing. 
This group doesn't feel that way. They don't act that way. The last 30 years, Lisa and I had a home Bible study. And it was a great way for us to connect with college students. I believe I was shaped more by their teaching than any teaching I provided. They called our, our home Bible study the Williams House Church. That's more than semantics. The Williams House Church was their church. Lance, when he went to study abroad for the semester, he came back and I ran into him on the sidewalk. He said, Mike, how's things at the church? He wasn't asking me about where I went to church on Sunday. He was asking me about the Williams House Church. That's where he connects with. Now, the Williams House Church is like a lot of churches. We come, we study the Holy Text, we ask God's intervention in our lives, we pray over one another, we have announcements. And then generally, somebody would stand up at the end, like Andrew from Prattville, or Rachel from South Carolina, and say, tonight we're going to meet under the bridge, or Friday night we're going to meet under the bridge. We're going to serve the homeless. The reason why they're mobilizing is because they're tired of waiting on us. We're watching this generation watch, walk away from every institutional tribe, religious tribe in America. And the, I think one of the reasons is that they're tired of waiting on us. They're not going to wait for shepherds to tell them what to do. Two of the girls that were part of the, our church, Rachel and Kayla, after they graduated, they moved to Little Rock, took a job at a hospital. They're nurses. And right before we, Lisa and I left Montgomery, they called us and they said, hey, we want to come, come for dinner. That was not an unusual request, but the tone of their, their words was a little different. So when they got there, they said, we really need to talk. What's up? We're going to move. Really? You both got a great job at St. Vincent. Why would you want to move? Oh, we're not leaving our job. You're moving? You live in West Little Rock. You got all the amenities of East Chase. Why would you want to move? Well, you know, we go to church downtown. And we're going to move to 17th Street. 17th Street in North Little Rock is one of the worst uh, streets in America. The density of teenage pregnancy in that couple blocks is greater than any place you'll find in the United States. It is an absolute war zone. And so Kayla and Rachel said, this is where we're going to move. And our parents are going crazy. But we don't care. I look over at Lisa and she's got tears running down her face. We love these girls. We don't want anything to happen to them but they're called by Jesus Christ not to run away from the trouble, but to run to it. I wish this was an isolated case, but it's not. It seems like this emerging generation is fearless and they're running to want, run to poverty. They're running to run to, towards challenges. It's got a great first century quality to it as I watch them and I've been struck by them. 
Robert Lewis wrote this book called The Church of Irresistible Influence. And he, ref- he reflected on about a 30-year ministry. And one of the things that he found, he looked at those of the, of the people that came to their church and stayed and those that came to their church and left. And was there any commonality? And there were mostly young people that came to this church. Dr. Lewis said this. He said, one of the things we found was that the people that left, they weren't engaged in any meaningful outreach. They got bored. And they left. Now that flies in the face of most church research that says, what's the church got to do? It's got to be family. It's got to connect people to each other. It's got to have relationships. And if we have relationships, we'll stay. We'll stay together. Well, that's true. But what we're finding in this emerging generation is that they want to be a part of something. Something redemptive. Now what also happens is when they lock arms with one another in meaningful service, great friendships emerge. So there is great power in relationships. But there's got to be something more to this calling of God than just being a great social club of good people. We've got to be called to the ministry of Jesus Christ and forging out. Are we going to be a fellowship it's completely occupied, preoccupied with Sunday mornings. Now, Jeremy and the praise team, they've done a great job of ushering us to the throne of grace so that we praise the name of Jesus. And that's important. But it's got to be more than that. We're watching this generation walk away because they're seeing us just talk and argue and squabble about what happens for one hour on a Sunday. They want to know, what are we going to do to redeem the world? And they're absolutely right. Erwin McManus, in his book, Unstoppable Force, says the church really responds to a pressing world three different ways. He said some churches respond in an antagonistic way. Is that they see the world going nuts around them, and they get angry. They get mad. They get frustrated. They get scared, so they isolate themselves in a little huddle. They're disgusted. Some churches respond to the pressures of a a diminishing or collapsing culture, and they just respond in an apathetic way. They say, it's going nuts out there, but at least it's safe in here. They're rejecting the teachings of God. So let them go to hell. McManus said, though, that the calling of Scripture is not neither one of those. But the calling of Scripture is that we respond to a collapsing culture just like the first century. And we respond to it in an apostolic way, an engaging way, in a way where we run towards and, uh, them and we're fearless. We live in a time of tremendous uncertainty. The message of Isaiah 43 is so you have to go pass through the waters. The raging waters you've got to pass through. But don't worry. He will see you through. Isaiah 43 reminds us that we run into the fire. But the fire does not consume us. In the midst of the desert is an oasis 
and that is him. We live in a crazy world. Isaiah 43, I think it's verse 18 or 19, says, But see, I'm doing a new thing. Can you not perceive it? God has promised that we're going to travel through this land, this barren land. He said you're going to travel through it unscathed. Do we trust him? Do we believe that the Lord really goes before us? Are we letting our fears sterilize us? Do we look at life through the lens of Joshua, expecting God to do something amazing through us? Are we going to be shackled and engage in the devil's bargain and just look for a peaceful path right down the middle? Let's pray together. Holy God in heaven, we lift up the name of Jesus. We're thankful that you have brought us to you. and You've cleansed us of our sins. We're thankful for the mission that you've engaged us in. Forgive us, dear God, when we're fearful. Forgive us. We've watched you lay down your life for us. You're calling us to lay down our lives for the people of Montgomery. I pray, dear God, that you'll loosen our grip on those things that are unimportant and that we will follow your calling to bring about the redemption of Jesus Christ. Bless us, dear God. In the name of Christ Jesus, I pray. Amen. Today's lesson reminds us that God brings us into redemption. I love the story of Rahab because the story of Rahab continues. Is that when you find her in Scripture, you find her two more times. You find her in Matthew chapter 1 in the lineage of Jesus Christ. She's the great, 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 27 generations back, grandmother of Jesus Christ. And you find her in Hebrews 11, that great faith chapter. It reminds us that regardless of your broken life, Jesus can redeem you. And not only can he redeem you, he can make you a part of the deliverance. We're going to sing a song. This is a great church, a church of great shepherds. And if you've got a need, bring it before them. Let them pray over you to call us all into repentance, to lay down our lives for Jesus Christ and engage in his mission. Or if you've not become a Christian, to recognize that you're lost without him. You need to be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And you can come and be saved today. If you have a need, come forward as we sing.